When I was in high school in the early 2000s, there was this idea, this myth, that you could download a game for your calculator. Now, I'd never actually seen anyone playing a calculator game, and I had no idea how to get one. But it turns out it was possible, and it went far beyond my own school. I had seen from a classmate them kind of noodling around on their calculator quite a bit during class one time. And I'm like, well, you know, then that doesn't look like they're doing calculations or whatever because they're using kind of the D-pad an awful lot. And after class, I'm like, what were you doing? And he shows me that he's got Tetris running (laughs) on his calculator. And my eyes get really big. And I'm like, no way. How do you tell me more? How do you do this? That's Colin Worth from the YouTube channel, This Does Not Compute. You know, and kind of explained, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can get games for these, I guess. Like, he wasn't an expert in it or anything by any means, but, you know, this kind of showed me, yeah, you know, I got them from somebody else and they sent the, you know, the games over to my calculator and now I can play them. And it went from there. I tried to absorb, you know, as much knowledge as I could, at least from kind of a a consumer standpoint what's this all about? Like, how do I get into this more? Where do I find these games? What are they capable of? And let me just say it made math class go by a lot faster for me. (laughs) We're talking about the graphing calculator, specifically the models made by Texas Instruments, which were a requirement in a lot of schools. And this experience of how people first learned about calculator games and went on a mission to try and get them was a common story because it was sort of an underground thing. The TI-83, I think, was kind of the new, you know, hot model that everyone in school had at the time. At least here in the U.S., in high school, the vast majority of the time, and this was in the kind of mid to late 90s, it was all kind of a sneaker net type of a thing, right? Where you had just other people that you eventually learned, you know, oh, they've got games on their calculator and you'd use the little link cable to hook up to theirs and then they could send them to you. And likewise, if you were talking about a game with someone else and they didn't have it, you could send, you know, a copy that you had to them just using that little cable. And that's kind of the way it was for me for at least the first couple of years. Um, I don't think anyone really knew where all of the new games were coming from. Many of these games were clones of existing titles, the kind of handheld games you'd typically find on the Nintendo Game Boy, like Tetris or Super Mario. But there were also entirely original games. You would occasionally come across like a really cool, even just text-based like adventure game that was completely original. You can tell someone had just sat down one day and decided to write it. Uh, And then there were other ones that were usually the more advanced style, you know, more graphics heavy, that sort of thing. And the level of skill that you would see on a game to game basis was really interesting as well. I mean, you can tell sometimes games were ones that just barely worked. You know, someone was still learning how to write programs for the calculator and they, you know, they managed to get this thing put together and it was a little rough around the edges, but it worked. And other times it was amazing. Um, In fact, to this day, my very favorite version of Tetris is actually a clone called Q for the TI-89. Just the way it works, it's very fluid. It was very efficient in the way that it was written. 
It's graphically rich, even though it's on a monochrome, you know, non-backlit screen, but it's got gravity effects and the controls are just about perfect. These were the days of dial-up internet. Games on mobile phones were barely a thing, and most teenagers didn't even have phones anyway. If you wanted to play games on a handheld device, your best option was a Game Boy. But good luck sneaking that into class. The height of Calculator Games was this brief moment in time, where their biggest audience were bored, rebellious school kids. So with the calculator, it's that stealthness, right? You didn't know unless you were looking at someone's screen, are they doing math or are they playing a game? You didn't know, but if they're sitting in math or science class, well, you kind of flew under the radar unless it was, you know, very obvious that you were, you know, heavy into some sort of action oriented game and mashing the buttons a little bit more than you normally would just, you know, crunching numbers for math class. You know, so so there was just that whole sense of kind of getting one over on the teacher, you know, sitting in the back of class, you know, you got your chair leaned back and you're sitting there playing Tetris or Mario or whatever when you should be doing the quadratic formula or something. And for the people who made these games, the graphing calculator presented a challenge, getting these devices to do things they were never designed to do. I'm James Parkinson from Lawson Media. This is Gameplay. Stories about video games and the virtual worlds that power culture and community. During the mid to late 90s or early 2000s, Texas Instruments were the most common brand of calculators in classrooms, and in many cases, the only brand. Established in 1951, the company has long been a leader in the electronics industry. They manufactured the first commercially available transistor radio in 1954 and began producing scientific calculators in the 1970s. Texas Instruments uh, is a semiconductor company, so they are, it's a very, very large company. They, they deal with a lot of different types of electronic components and computers and um, other types of uh, boards and devices, but their educational division is kind of uh, a very small part of Texas Instruments themselves, although it's probably one of the most profitable because they can produce these graphing calculators uh, somewhere around $10 a piece and sell them for you know, 10, 15 times that. This is Brandon Wilson, and if you want to know anything about calculators, he's your guy. I actually have one of the world's largest collections of of calculators. I have every every model, every hardware revision, color variation, school property ones, various accessories, projector attachments, and so on, prototypes, engineering samples, uh, almost everything. It's almost a museum. Since the introduction of their first graphing calculator in 1990, the TI-81, Texas Instruments embedded themselves into the education system in the United States. So they have a lot of deals with uh, with educators and, and classrooms. So they can make these calculators part of their curriculum and the schools kind of have to stick with that model, not only that brand, but that particular model that they're, that they're working with. So Texas Instruments has a firm, a firm grasp on the educational community, I think. But uh, it wasn't until they actually made a graphing calculator with a screen large enough to be able to do things with instead of just displaying one or two lines of text that it really took off from a programming and a gaming standpoint. TI calculators supported two different programming languages, depending on the model, which is what makes writing games possible. There are what are called basic programs, which are written in a programming language that Texas Instruments came up with called TI Basic. It's very similar to basic on a computer. And then 
there are games that are written in a much lower level language, which are called assembly language programs. And those are programs that are that operate at a much lower level and they have more access to the hardware, which means it's possible to create uh, faster, better games that are more capable than basic ones. So basic programs and basic games tend to be more text-based, whereas assembly programs are the more fun games, games like Mario, Tetris. But of course, Texas Instruments never intended for people to make games for their calculators. Most high school students probably wouldn't even use the programming functions. But if you were interested in learning how, writing a program could certainly be helpful. Here's Colin Worth. It was included, I think, on TI's part, really just as a way to maybe give you the ability to write something simple to help you do mathematical functions. Like if there was some something that you needed to do repeatedly that would take multiple steps to do by hand on the calculator. I think their intention was you could write a program that would do all of that for you in one shot. So a great example is actually a calculator program I wrote myself back in high school on my TI-83. In math class, we were going through some like trigonometry kind of stuff and learning about the quadratic equation and other formulas where once you got it, like how the formula worked, it just became kind of monotonous to have to do it over and over again on the calculator. Like the calculator definitely did the heavy lifting of some of the mathematical functions, but it was just a lot of typing. And what I realized was that I could leverage basic to do some of that for me, right? So I figured out how variables worked, you know, ask you, okay, what do you want this side of the triangle to be in terms of its length? And what's the length of the other side of the triangle? You type that number in, and then it could tell you what the length of the third side was. That sort of a thing. It was faster and easier to write a program to do that for me in the end, just because of how much time it would save me otherwise having to type that formula in over and over. Okay, that's enough maths. What about the games? So if you were... You know, in high school, you probably would have been writing a more basic program, like, you know, one of those text adventure kind of games. And that really wouldn't take terribly long. And I remember doing that once. Um, Just out of curiosity, I had found a game online. It was like an adventure, kind of choose your own adventure text game. And you'd print it out like on paper and you'd just sit there and read through and type it all in. It took me a few hours to do it. And when I was done, you know, I saved it and then I played it and it was not very satisfying. And the reason is because I already knew how the game worked, right? You're, you're literally typing the entire game out. It's a text-based adventure game. So you know what all the possibilities are. It was spoiled for me just in the act of trying to get it on the calculator to begin with. So, text-based games, not very exciting. But what about something like Tetris or Pokemon? Where things got a lot more complicated was the other type of games, and those were ones written in assembly. Assembly is a language where you're interfacing directly with the hardware of the calculator. You're not necessarily going through any sort of command interpreter like you would be with BASIC you are more or less telling the CPU itself directly, this is what I want you to calculate. I want you to put this information in these places in memory. I want you to compute these, you know, these algorithms, do these calculations, do all this kind of stuff directly. It's obviously a lot more complicated of a language to learn because you need to have knowledge 
of not just how to write programs in general, but also how the hardware you're writing that program against is laid out and how it works. So you need to have knowledge of internally, like how the CPU functions and where all the RAM registers are and, and that sort of thing. Learning all that hardware kind of had to be done from scratch. There wasn't really any support from Texas Instruments. Once it was possible to write assembly programs on the first calculator, which is the first calculator that supported it, which was the T85, uh, we had to kind of reverse engineer the operating system and all of the hardware ourselves and learn everything about how to communicate with it from the uh, keyboard and directly reading uh, inputs to outputting graphics of uh, different types to the LCD uh, and so on. So all that had to be done uh, manually. It all had to be done ourselves. There was no there was no SDK or anything like that you might see in other communities. You kind of had to do it all yourself. So if you wanted to write games for calculators, you not only had to have a willingness to create games, but you also had to have a willingness to reverse engineer, you know, things that had nothing to do with games, like the operating system itself and all the all the the ways that it interacted with hardware and try to figure out how it was doing it. So it was a, definitely a lot of trial and error that was probably beyond most people, but the ones who stuck with it, they were the ones who really had uh, the right mindset for not only game programming, but just programming in general and reverse engineering. I have a feeling that the vast majority of those types of games were written probably by like college or university students who were going through computer science programs. And, you know, much like the, um, shall we say, high school students who didn't find math class very entertaining, like myself, who just wanted to get through class by doing things like playing games. Um, I have a feeling these computer science <laughs> students probably felt kind of the same way. Maybe they were the brighter ones who already knew some of what was being taught and just had to take the class as part of a requirement, or maybe they just found lecture boring or whatever. And so they spent the time instead writing games for their calculator instead of playing them. Brandon was one of those savvy students who actually made an original game of his own. The one game, the one credit to my name, gaming-wise, is a game called Bat Cave. It's a very simple game. It's basically like Flappy Bird, except I had never heard of that game at the time. So uh, the idea was that you're a little bat in a cave that would constantly and randomly uh, shift sh and change shape so that you had to, you were kind of constantly gliding down unless you were holding a button, and then you would glide up. And there were obstacles in your path, and so you had to just try to last as long as possible. Uh, in order to get a, a high score. And it's very similar to other games that existed uh, on those calculators. Uh, one of my favorite games was a game called Fall Down. And you were just a little ball on a screen that was constantly scrolling up. And you had little breaks in the floor. And then you had to constantly rush to the left or the right side before the ball got to the top of the screen. Otherwise, you would die. So it was very similar to that. And, and I would say that's a, a lot of games were like that. It was really just a, a test of endurance and... Uh, trying to get the highest score so you could play the game in class and then pass it off to your friend who was sitting next to you and you could see if you could last just a little bit longer. So th that was how I played games when I was younger and, and in school, and I found that to be a lot of fun. And I think I'm sure other students did the same. Although he wasn't very experienced in making games, with his knowledge of assembly, it took Brandon about a couple of weeks to create Batcave. And as simple as these kind of games were, I sort of find them more impressive than something like a Super Mario clone, because those games have their limitations too. The one thing that I did find interesting, and it probably speaks more to the 
amount of resources available hardware-wise in a calculator and the amount of skill that the people writing the games had. And that is, I never found any true duplicates. Like, I would have expected maybe at some point for someone to write, you know, a game that was like the first level of Super Mario 1. You know, in its entirety, you could play it, it looks exactly the same. I've never found anything like that. These games are always a little bit different in one way or another. They had the same spirit. The controls may have worked the same, but the graphics are always a little off and the level layout was always a little bit different. So you can tell there was still, even though they were kind of like aping the style of that game, there was still some creativity on the programmer's part when they put that title together. Still, that didn't matter so much if you were a teenager just looking for a distraction in class and maybe a way to impress your friends with the games you could show off on your calculator. And for the programmers, the community around calculator gaming was far more important. That's coming up after the break. As an independent podcast, listener support is incredibly important for gameplay. So if the show is valuable to you, please consider becoming a gameplay member. Memberships are just five US dollars a month or 50 US dollars a year. You'll receive an ad-free podcast feed, bonus content, and I'll personally send you a gameplay sticker pack. There is a free tier as well if you're not in a position to contribute monetarily, but if you can, you'll be actively helping to make the podcast sustainable so I can continue to bring you stories you care about. Sign up now at gameplay.co slash membership. Thanks. It's obvious that games don't need to be complicated in order to be fun, and keeping it simple in calculator gaming made things much easier, because of course, these devices weren't made with games in mind. Yeah, gaming on these calculators was definitely challenging in some ways, for sure. Um, The biggest thing I think that was always the challenge was the controls. There was a D-pad on those calculators, but it's on the right side, which is kind of the opposite of where most people would expect it. So your, you know, your dexterity was always going to play a little bit because everyone's just so used, regardless of whether you're left or right-handed, everyone is used to having the D-pad be on the left. And then the action buttons were going to be on the left side, but there were a whole bunch of buttons on the calculator. So like, which ones did you use? And you can tell that the better programmers had thought about that in advance because they would often include the controls like right on the splash screen of the game before you started instead of leaving them as some sort of note that you had to read online when you went to download the game. You know, they were kind of thinking ahead about exactly what environment they were writing their game for and that the buttons themselves wouldn't necessarily be intuitive as to which action button is what. Eventually, though, as you just kind of, you know, get into it, you'd figure it out. You know, Tetris actually was pretty easy to get into because the movements don't necessarily have to be all that quick. Um, Platformers were a little bit more of a challenge, especially the Mario style ones where you have to run and jump at the same time in very specific timings. 
generally latency wasn't too big of a deal if the game was written decently well you know you you they were all playable but just kind of wrapping your head around the mirror image control scheme would sometimes send people for a bit of a loop Another significant difference compared to something like a Game Boy is that calculators don't have speakers, so none of these games have any sound. While you didn't get that audible feedback, it was actually an advantage, because if you're a high school student playing in class, you didn't want to alert the teacher to the fact you were playing games. And for the programmers, it was one thing they didn't have to worry about. The underground nature of calculator gaming meant that sharing among students was how most people got a hold of new games. But there were always one or two people who were perhaps more involved in the community and were able to access games at their source, specialist websites where programmers could upload their games for anyone to download to their device, as long as they had the right cable. You would use this connection kit called the TI GraphLink cable, And that would hook up between like the serial port on your computer and your calculator. And then you could just run special software on your computer to send and receive files back and forth. This was the mid 90s. So the Internet was just getting to be a thing. And I learned that there were websites out there that actually had programs that you could download and transfer them to your calculator. Not only uh, math and educational programs, but also games as well. And when I realized that, I immediately downloaded every game that existed for that particular model that I had, the TID3, uh, and played them all. And I was just fascinated by it. And that's when I would say my horizons around calculator gaming really started to broaden because it wasn't just, you know, a high school kind of a thing. This was really kind of a worldwide thing. And there were people, you know, in college and university that were getting in on the action and create these games and they'd upload them to the Internet. And there were several websites at the time that kind of archived them and had news about all the new titles that were available and you know whenever texas instruments would release a new calculator they would do a review on it and tell you all about it oh it's better in this way or whatever and then they also had guides on how to get software on and off of your calculator so at at some point i eventually realized boy there are a lot more games out on the internet that i'd be interested in playing than I would get in a timely manner just from, you know, friends and classmates at school. So I started kind of getting in on the action myself. One of the most popular sites at the time was TICalc.org. It's actually still active today. It also still looks like a website from the late 90s. But it was more than just a free marketplace to download games and programs. It was a thriving community of calculator enthusiasts. Everyone kind of acknowledged that it had the largest archives. For whatever reason, it was a site that people decided that if you made a game or a program or anything else for a TI calculator, you uploaded it there. This is Nikki Sutherland, a software engineer and a volunteer archiver for TI Calc. They didn't really have a forum, but they did have these news articles, which allowed some commenting on... And they also had an about section that talked about other places you could talk to people and kind of, you know, collaborate and cooperate. And one of those was uh, this uh, Internet Relay Chat, or IRC, which is a very early chat program. And it's where there are some chat rooms where you could just join and talk to people. I didn't know this when I joined, but there is where a lot of the programmers of the games and programs I was playing and using were on these channels. They were just hanging out 
you know, existing in here and you could talk to them and you could hear them kind of talked about their various concerns and programs and what they're working on. And it's a pretty novel idea to be around these kind of like-minded people who are interested in this intersection of gaming and technology. And, you know, we all were more or less math nerds as well. And we all kind of were able to just exist without really being bothered. Um, it was a space that was welcoming in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. It was a fun place to to hang out and be yourself in a world that was pretty confusing at the time. I would say there was a very strong programming presence. Uh, a lot of the students who not only had the calculators, but had the knowledge to get a link cable and uh, start transferring these programs back and forth, um, very quickly got into development. They were very enamored with the idea of creating these programs and games themselves. They would you know, they would take them apart and they would, the, the games and the programs that they, that they liked, and they would try to understand them. They would create their own. Diacalc.org was kind of the, um, kind of the main hub of the community for a really long time. They, there are news articles on the front page. And if you were featured on the front page of Diacalc.org because of a program or a game that you made, you know, you, you kind of, you, you, you know, you'd made it, you're on top of the world. <laughs> it's like, almost like, almost like being a celebrity. And uh, it was a very interesting time. We we're all, not competitive, but we were all very interested in, you know, our own little niche and our own little area. Some people had, uh, I, I can't tell you the number of people who were so focused on creating a Zelda clone, <laughs> you know, a, a very kind of a, kind of a Game Boy Zelda type game and, you know, fully featuring grayscale and all, all sorts of maps. And, and, that, and that's a very complicated game to make on these models. And so it required a lot of knowledge and a lot of patience and understanding and, and motivation. But pushing the limits of the hardware was motivation enough. Just the challenge of could it be done? To come into a world, a whole environment, a whole ecosystem that where nobody knows anything and everybody's kind of learning from scratch. And, and it's a very interesting way to, uh, to go about uh, game design and game programming and just learning programming in general. The sheer ubiquity of these devices meant that eventually at some point somebody's going to figure out how to turn these things into gaming devices and you saw from this that there's so many there's such a large user base out there where everyone has the same platform and everyone has you know the access to the same tools and everyone can create their own programs off of that very easily whereas with something like a Game Boy you know a Game Boy is great and it's powerful and it's made for gaming but it's also pretty hard to start as like an amateur programmer to program for the Game Boy. The limitations on the hardware and also in the software, I think really drove people, right? Like they wanted to do it. It's kind of like how you've, you've probably heard about all these random other technology devices. And when you think about hacking, you know, can you jailbreak the OS? Can you get the device, whatever it may be, to do something other than what it was intended to do by the manufacturer? The first thing a lot of people ask is, can it play Doom? And I think the people who wrote calculator games were in that same mindset too. It's just, it was a challenge. And games just happened to be the thing that they were otherwise interested in or would at least get them a wide enough audience for other people to be interested in their work. 
You know, if they wrote the most fantastic math program in the world that totally leveraged the hardware to its full capability and just had just amazing programming quality, just really clever tricks and all that kind of stuff. If it was a math program, I don't think many people would have cared. But because they wrote this just incredible clone of Mortal Kombat or whatever for the TI-83, that got people's attention, right? There, there's a little bit of geek cred going on there because of what they were able to do with such limited resources. Yes, people did make clones of Doom and Mortal Kombat for graphing calculators. Earlier models, though, like the TI-85, only had native support for the basic programming language. For assembly, it took some exploits to get around that limitation. People figured out that there were holes or bugs in the operating system on the TI-85, and they realized ways to exploit those to get access directly to the hardware. And so they called those shells, you know, ultimately the programs that they would write that would take advantage of those bugs and allow you to launch any program that you wanted that was written in assembly. Those assembly programs is really where I think a lot of the creativity was shown because that totally opened up the capabilities, the full capabilities of the hardware, the calculator. Assembly shells are essentially programs that run other programs, and they made the calculator much easier to use when programming and running games. Another example would be the operating system doesn't allow running games and programs directly from the user archive or flash memory. And so they have to be copied into RAM first and then run. And the operating system doesn't support that natively. So the shells would do that for you. You would select a program or game you wanted to run. It would copy it from flash into RAM and it would run it from there. And then if it needed to, it would write it back to flash in order to preserve high scores or whatever the program uh, was doing. So the, the, these shells added a lot of functionality uh, to the operating system that they wouldn't otherwise have. Texas Instruments have never really made public statements about calculator gaming, and in those early days, it was unclear where the company stood on people using their hardware for purposes other than what they were intended for. When we first started creating exploits, you know, um, we didn't know how Texas Instruments was going to react to that. We didn't know if they were going to come after us legally and issue threats, or uh, they were going to immediately patch and fix the bugs, or they didn't care. You know, we didn't know. But with the release of the TI-83 in 1996, it appeared their position was changing, or at least responding to the community. They definitely had kind of a change of heart, you know, with originally only supporting programming in BASIC. They eventually went full on into supporting assembly programming, not just allowing people to do it, but even making programming resources available online, like guides. Here's how you do this on our calculators. Here are the specifications for the models, and here's how you know all the intricacies about it and that sort of thing. Very low-level programming kind of stuff. That said, I don't think they ever would officially sanction it. Obviously, TI and this kind of comes back to the whole story about why TI calculators specifically were so big in U.S. schools. You know, they had a vested interest in being kind of the dominant power in selling those devices to schools. Texas Instruments doesn't actually mind people uh, playing games on the calculators. What they mind is, and it's also really what educators mind, is they don't want people playing games and taking notes and so on during tests or other uh, during certain activities in the classroom. And speaking of cheating, I mean, programming in and of itself, just because it's a basic 
you know, basic text entry, a lot of times people would just use that for cheating. You could type notes into a program in your calculator. It doesn't matter if the program actually works. It was on the calculator and that was a tool you were allowed to have on your test. So if you forgot, how, you know, what the structure of a specific formula was or how that would work, you could type it in on the calculator ahead of time and refer back to it during the test like it was just notes. Because of this, it was common practice for teachers to remove the batteries prior to a maths exam in order to wipe any programs that students could use to cheat. And rightly so. But of course, that also meant you lost any games stored on your device too. You know, ultimately, I think probably more good than harm was done, um, at least from an educational perspective, by including programming capabilities in the calculators, because... I can't imagine if you're really nerdy enough to get into wanting to have programs on your calculators that weren't games, that you wouldn't be at least a little bit curious about how those programs worked. Whether it was writing a program to save time typing out equations or creating your own game from scratch, the graphing calculator was the platform that introduced a generation of people to programming, learning skills that influenced their path in life. These days, Brandon is a software developer and security consultant, and credits calculators for giving him his career. Equally, Nikki Sutherland says the community played a big role in inspiring him to become a software engineer. It laid a seed that came to fruition years, years later. For me, it was definitely something I liked the community and I liked the idea of being able to play these games. I never felt I was really capable enough to make these more advanced programs, the assembly language programs. And I just needed some some pushes in the right direction. And I needed somebody to say, you know, this is something you can teach yourself. And I think that's the most important part is just this community around it saying, you know, here's something that we all have a shared interest in. These are things you can do with that interest. And if you're interested in these things, you might be able to do these other skills that are more relevant in life. And for some people who have forged careers in game development, TR Calculator Games may have just been their entry point too. And I've got a little bit of evidence to kind of corroborate this, that a lot of the people who are doing indie gaming today started learning how to program on a calculator. I did a video about Texas Instruments graphing calculator hacking on YouTube and I actually got a significant number of people in the comments on that video saying, yeah, that was me. That's exactly the way it was. I played a game for the first time on a calculator in high school and I was hooked. And now I'm a software developer at, you know, some big company or whatever. It's really interesting to see how it was this calculator that really kind of got their start instead of the more traditional way of, well, I'm gonna learn how to write you know, a simple program on a big computer. It's this personal piece of tech that you can you know, put in your pocket, hold in your hand. I do find that really interesting, just how the timing worked out of the people who were in high school back in the 90s, you know, at this point in their lives, the age they are now, they could be you know, pretty high up software developers at companies that are targeting mobile devices. Thanks so much to Colin Wirth, Brandon Wilson, and Nikki Sutherland. 
As always, there's lots more we couldn't fit into this story, so visit the episode page on our website, gameplay.co, for references and links to further reading. Colin's YouTube channel is This Does Not Compute. Check it out for more on retro video games, computers and tech, and we have a direct link to that as well. Gameplay is a production of Lawson Media. This episode was written and produced by me, James Parkinson. The gameplay theme was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder, and our artwork is by Keegan Sanford. Additional music from Epidemic Sound and Breakmaster Cylinder. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Gameplay Podcast, and you can join our community on Discord. As an independent podcast, we rely a lot on listener support, and that includes reaching new listeners. So if you can take a moment to recommend gameplay to a couple of friends who you think would enjoy the show, I'd greatly appreciate it. You can find all the links, episode transcripts, and further reading on our website, gameplay.co. Until next time, thanks for listening.